And uh, we also just want to point out that uh, for those of you into Instagram, we have a hashtag. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it is uh, Photo Archives Oxford. We've written it around the place, so feel free to use it. Uh, and I'm delighted to introduce Chris Morton, uh, who is curator of photographs and manuscript collections at Pitt Rivers Museum. Uh, and he very kindly offered to also host uh, the site visits there. Uh, he's also a lecturer in visual and material anthropology here at Oxford. And uh, his publications include two recent books with Bloomsbury, Photographs, Museums, Collections Between Art and Information with Elizabeth Edwards and the African Photographic Archive Research and Curatorial Strategies with Darren Newbury. And he's going to speak to us today about the relational album, Photographic Networks, Anthropology and the Learned Society. Thank you, Chris. Great, thank you uh, very much. And uh, indeed, thank you for inviting me to present today at the Photographic Archives, episode six. <coughs> uh, thank you. So, uh, in this presentation, I want to focus on two photographic album projects uh, instigated in the 1860s and 70s by two uh, European anthropological learned societies uh, the Anthropological Society of London and the Berliner Gesellschaft for Anthropologie, Ethnologie und Urgeschichte. And you'll forgive me for referring to it as the Berlin Society hereafter. Um, now, these albums, um, now if you're lucky enough to have signed up to our site visits today, you'll actually get to see one of them and a version of the other one, the Berlin one. Um, these albums are inherently fascinating objects. Uh, their contents are full of fascinating material and they speak to many different histories. But with time short today and conference focus on the concept of, and I'm going to follow Edward Casey here, the placial nature of photographs, I'd like to explore how we might think about these albums as relational objects. That is, objects that unfold a complex series of relations over time between people and things. I also want to discuss these albums in their material relations to networks, as stopping points within networks and as performances of networks. And I then want to make some remarks on peculiar temporalities involved in constructing and viewing uh, such scientific albums, which might lead us beyond straightforward historical narrative. Oh, that doesn't work. Oh, that works. So, at the time, the Anthropological Society of London began in 1863 as a breakaway organisation from the Ethnological Society. Photography was already a well-established practice, yet its dominance as a medium of scientific description was arguably only just emerging. The album I'm showing cover of here seems to have been started in 1867, but contains some material evidently shown at meetings in the years before and after that date. It's today in the collection of the Pitt Rivers Museum, and it's likely that it was acquired from the Society at an early date, possibly 
in the late 1870s by Augustus Pitt Rivers himself. Since he bought many of the items in the Anthropological Society's collection in this period, and this album contains documentation relating to those objects, and this is why we think um, this, this came in with the founding collection. So, the Anthropological Society of London's interests were diverse, with a particular bias towards the investigation of race and anatomy, intelligence and language. On this page, for example, is pasted a photograph sent in 1867 by a trader and one of the Society's local secretaries for West Africa, Robert Bruce Napoleon Walker. One of a number sent with letters and a collection of 46 objects from Gabon. The page also shows three views of a Frenchman, said to be a case of scaphocephaly, a type of cranial deformation, taken by society member and local London photographer David Gay. On the opposite page are several photographs of a youth being held for the camera, said to be a case of idiocy and microcephaly, or abnormally small head, sent by society member Dr John Short of the Madras Medical Services. Below these is a further photograph sent by Short, a studio photograph with backdrop and patterned carpet of a girl from the Zhuang people of Odisha state in eastern India, sometimes known at the time as leaf wearers, about whom Short sent a paper relating to some peculiarities of their jawline to the society in 1865, which was read out at the meeting by J.F. Collingwood. On another page from the album, pasted an advertisement for the exhibition of a Zulu woman at the Sir John Falstaff pub in Covent Garden by an enterprising landlord, John Thomas Roberts. Facing this is a series of photographs of a boy from the Abinu Ubunu people of Sierra Leone. Three views of his head and three of his right hand, front and back. This boy had been exhibited in front of the society's members at its meeting of February 20th, 1866 by T. Valentine Robbins who stated that he'd been redeemed from slavery and was now his servant. He went on to explain the boy's scarifications and other characteristics before a debate amongst members took place about intelligence and race. One member present, C. Carter Blake, asserted in the meeting that the known generalisation that African people's hands were more webbed than Europeans was borne out by this boy in the room, whose hands were more webbed than any white person present. The photographs pasted into the album were taken by the photographer David Gay, who had obviously photographed the boy after the meeting to record his hands as the basis for future debate. At the next meeting of the society, the chairman, to quote, directed attention to some photographs on the table of the Negro, bo Negro boy from Bunu, who was exhibited at the former meeting, and especially to three photographs of the boy's hands, which showed in the opinion of some gentlemen, an approximation to a webbed structure. Photographs can here be seen as beginning to play a complex evidential role in the meetings of the society, not only being frequently shown as corroborating data and passed around at meetings, but as here also beginning to be used to objectively question, measure and record evidence presented at meetings to its members. In this instance, an actual indigenous person. The objects, photographs, drawings and correspondence were all kept in the Society's museum on its premises 
where members could consult first-hand original specimens presented as evidence and discussed in the Society's journal. This then partly explains the scrapbook format of the album, mirroring the minute books that stood alongside them as a record of scientific discussion. So from London we move to Germany and ahead just a few years to 1872. The Anthropologische Ethnologisches album was published gradually between 1872 and 1876 and eventually contained 50 large printed sheets with hundreds of albumen carte de visite size prints pasted on. For each of five continents, several sub-series were produced, comparing the racial characteristics within the representative images. Now, the project was initiated by the Berlin Anthropology Society, as I say, which had been founded a few years earlier in 1869. In January 1871, the Society's members had asked uh, photographer Karl Dammann in Hamburg to make a series of anthropological portraits of the crew of the Zanzibari ship El Magidi, which was docked there. And the resulting series of images was subsequently sold to numerous museums and universities. The society soon after decided to commission Daman to copy a wide range of material at the society's disposal, as well as in the personal collections of some of its most prominent members, such as Robert Hartmann, Gustav Fritsch, and Fedor Jagel, as well as from other collections, such as the Godefroy Museum in Hamburg and German expatriates in Daman's network, or who answered his advertisements for material. In 1872, it was explained to members in the pages of the Society's journal, the Zeitschrift for Ethnology, that the project would, to quote, not yet be without deficiencies, as they, are all, as they always occur during the first attempts, the trials on a new path. The tribal types will emerge in a disorderly way. Subsequent deliveries of images must hence be organised depending on how, in which form, and in what number these are accrued. The Society soon realised that the ambitious scope of its project had exhausted its own network and so authorised Dammann to advertise the need for source material to the general public under its auspices. In 1874, after producing several sheets of the series, the Society learned of the death of Karl Dammann and yet reported its continuation through his brother, Frederick, who worked as a teacher in England. Yet soon after, in 1875, the Society tried to persuade Frederick Dammann to halt production, citing the high cost of the album at 100 thaler, making it unaffordable uh, for all but the wealthiest individuals or institutes, particularly following the financial panic of 1873 and the subsequent economic depression. Uh, by comparison, a labourer in 1875 might earn 30 thaler annually, so you can actually see the cost of this of work. The remnants of Frederick's continuation of the Berlin Society's project were eventually bought by the Pitt Rivers Museum in 1901 from Frederick's widow. It includes many copy prints made by the Dammann brothers for the project, as well as full plate negatives on which the source material was re-photographed. This example uh, shows source material uh, by Gustav Fritsch from South Africa, uh, as well as Carte de Visite from South Australia and from Oceania, all numbered, just visible uh, alongside on the background, according to their number in the eventual album. The publication of the album and its subsequent smaller and more affordable uh, formats, which I say one of which you can view at the Pit Rivers today or tomorrow, 
was hailed across Europe as a major step forward in the objective description <coughs> of race for the use of uh, anthropologists. Even botanists, it was claimed, could benefit from the inspection of the environments surrounding the portrayed figures. Now, I'll be clear from what I've just said that both the London and Berlin album projects were very different undertakings. The London album is a bound book, like a scrapbook. It's meant to be added to over time, to keep objects together in the same place, to gather relationships and biography over time as material comes in. There's no intended narrative structure in a conventional sense. It's metonymic of presentations made at society meetings, of discussions and debates in the meeting room. It refers outwards to papers and arguments presented, to the orality of gathered meetings, and also to the texts of papers and communications subsequently published. Usually, the barest context is given and included material kept together for reference in conjunction with associated text or letters sent to the society, some of which are also uh, pasted into the album. The Berlin album, by contrast, is a systematic and ordered production, a public album for wider, although, as I've said, quite exclusive consumption. This example in particular is from the Radcliffe Science Library here in Oxford. Its material form is the sheet, or blatt is in, in the German term that they used, issued over time with a gold-lettered storage box at high cost to collectors and institutions. It emerged from the liberal German anthropological tradition and its visual interests, and an anthropological society that made one of its founding concerns the central collection and dissemination of reliable visual data. But the technical production of the album was done by a professional photographer who also had a degree of discretion over how he sourced material for the album. The reproductive technology of photographic copying was central to the project, enabling the dissemination of the album in significant numbers some years before the commercial halftime process revolutionised photographic publishing in the 1880s. Whilst both albums that I'm discussing are located in two repositories in Oxford, their relationship to place is much more complex. I've chosen to explore both albums' uh, relationship to place through the concept of network. But it's too simplistic to say that such albums straightforwardly reflect the work of scientific networks. The social and material mechanisms involved in the creation, use and subsequent institutional lives of these albums need a much more nuanced approach, one that takes account of the various temporalities that they evolve. Although both quite different objects, both albums are obviously closely entwined in the social relationships and networks of their respective societies. As relational objects, they both conceal and reveal the mass of interrelations that lie behind them, <coughs> the original subjects of the photographs, the photographers, the collectors of the photographs, the members at meetings who handled, viewed and discussed them, those who copied them, those who published them, those who collected the albums, and those who consulted them in libraries and museums. As relational objects, their sets of relations do not end in the 1860s or 1870s. If, as the art historian Michael Baxendor has written, objects are, quote, the deposit of a social relationship, their relational nature also extends temporarily beyond to the subsequent social interactions um, surrounding them, mediated by them. Whilst, as we have seen, members of societies collected photographs, it can also be said that photographs collected people within the albums. 
If knowledge can be said to emerge from sets of relationships that are partly social and partly material, a relational model is essential to understanding these album projects. Such an approach was um, signalled in 2005 by Elizabeth Edwards when she drew our attention to how, to quote, photographs not only hold time and space, but extend time and space through sets of multiple relationships, their piled up significances, an aggregate of relationships. Edwards argued that such relations are, to quote, made up of multiple intersections of intention, process and action. These network intersections, or stoppages of, as I've called them, are one way of understanding the productive interaction between visual object and social network. As the anthropologist Marilyn Strathern has reminded us, the very concept of ne network is a metaphorical tracery of elements that constitute an object, an event or a set of circumstances. This tracery is held together by social interactions and characterised by its hybrid nature. But in the two album projects that I've been discussing, as I've said, we cannot map network and album content onto each other in a straightforward manner. That's to say, we can't just say that the albums reflect the network or are the material deposits of the network's scientific activity. For in both cases, there have been many instances of what Strathern terms cutting the network, deliberate acts of hybridisation, whereby aspects of the role of photography in the scientific network are not included in the albums, and extraneous elements not part of the scientific network at all are included. Partly this has got to do with the tension inherent in the ownership, circulation and reproduction of photographic material within 19th century scientific circles. As Strathern notes, to quote, where technology might enlarge networks, proprietorship can be guaranteed to cut them down to size. While societies in the late 19th century saw the great potential in widely disseminating the re-photography of original prints, as in the Daman project, thereby enlarging the social network of the scientific society, the editorial and commercial dimensions of the project also had the effect of cutting the scientific network, hybridising it through advertising in newspapers for visual material from travellers. In the London Anthropology Society album, the relationship between network and content is tighter, more consistent. Yet questions of what is included in its pages and what is not remain, as yet, mostly unanswered. Many photographs shown at meetings in the period and mentioned in the Society's transactions were not retained after the meeting in the Society's museum or for inclusion in the album. So whilst photography's reproducibility meant that some aspects of the network were extended or strengthened, for instance, when the, uh, with the Society's local secretaries in remote locations, it's clear that whilst exhibiting of photographs at meetings themselves became increasingly uh, regular over the period, the retention of copies for the Society's museum and thereby inclusion in this album was a much more haphazard process. Whilst these institutional albums then have an uneasy relationship to the concept of network, they've also got a very complex relationship to notions of history and place. And to do this, we need to move beyond just the historical particulars of their instigation and their content. Whilst, uh, obviously, I do believe those historical narratives have an important descriptive role, and uh, you know, have, I've also um, done some of it today, they do not sufficiently explain the ongoing temporal interactions of these albums. 
Duchamp's 1914 superimposition of a diagrammatic work on top of a figurative work on a previously used canvas titled Network of Stoppages, which I've let you cogitate on for a while behind me. is discussed by the anthropologist Alfred Gell in terms of its concealment and re revelation of temporality. To quote, the past is progressively obliterated by successive layers. Layers which, while effacing the past, adumbrate their own future. Successive stops in a temporal uh, sense, embracing past, present and future simultaneously interact in a complex relational network. So the Learning Society album resonates with these problems of time consciousness, of what to do in the present with representations of the recent past towards future scientific work. The re-photographed copies by the Damons in the Berlin album are, of course, images in front of other images. Yet the transparency of the copying process also serves as a form of concealment of previous materialities and temporalities. In the London Society album, temporality is inherent in the concealment and revelation of pages being turned by those looking through the album, of items that are intentionally kept together and those separated out for other openings and comparisons. There are temporal flows also in the very process of looking. As Willem Flusser noted, to quote him, while wandering over the surface of an image, one's gaze takes in one element after another and produces temporal relationships between them. It can return to an element of the image it has already seen and before can become after. This temporal relationship is particularly important in the Berlin album since it's the process of quick visual comparison between examples on the same sheet by which the anthropologist is meant to build up an impression of the typical racial features of a region's peoples. It's embedded in the visual method suggested by the album form itself. So I've tried in this presentation to suggest that although the concept of network is important to understanding these album projects, their identity as relational objects means that they can't be necessarily contained by a model that sees them as just the material deposits of network activity at a given place and time. Rather, these albums need to be understood in a much more dynamic, temporal sense, with ambiguous connections to network and place, and enfolding significant anxieties about the scientific usefulness of photographic representations of the recent past in a future-oriented present. Thanks very much.